I've got to say, I got kind of an infamous passage here. It's a passage that upsets some people. The part about the tree here, if you have your Bibles, Mark eleven twelve. Some have looked at this passage and they see it as the, the day when Jesus got hangry and went nuclear on a fig tree. You know, and they, they see it as kind of petty, like, <laughs> how could Jesus, the Son of God, be so petty that He would destroy a tree because there were no figs on it? I'm going to tell you this morning, I believe it was a lot more than just there not being any figs on that tree. He was teaching His disciples an object lesson. And I will explain that as we, as we go. But first, let's, let's look at what happened there. Mark eleven twelve. 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, the day after the triumphal entry, He was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, He went to see if He could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, and he goes on to pronounce this curse, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Any of you talk to your landscaping like that ever? <laughs> like, wow, wow. So, so what's going on here? Well, I believe, like I said, there's an object lesson going on. We'll get into it. But first, I want to talk to you about the power of object lessons. Jesus was, was a master at it. He knew that we learn better when we see something familiar, and He would often tie it to spiritual truth. Uh, I had an opportunity to do this with my family up in Flagstaff on Memorial Day weekend. We went up there and hiked some trails that we had never hiked before. Uh, one of them was called Fat Man's Loop because there was a spot where, where two rocks came very close together and it was kind of a, a tight squeeze through. Another one was Picture Canyon, which had a waterfall even before this current rain. Very cool. But we were out on one of the trails and something caught my eye. There was this group of ponderosa pine trees. Straighter, fatter, taller, healthier, more majestic than any ponderosa trees that I recall seeing before. Just very tall, straight, majestic looking. And right next to them, there was this patch of gnarled, black, dead old scrub oak, all bent over and crunchy looking. And we're hiking the trail, and I said to the family, hey, let's stop here for a minute, because that contrast between the two reminded me of something that I had just read in the book of Psalms. Psalm 20. Verse 7 and 8 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. And I thought about collapse and fall. I looked at that gnarled, dead old scrub oak and thought about stand upright. And I looked at the ponderosa pine tree and I said, Boys, which of the two would you rather be? This majestic ponderosa pine tree or this dead, gnarled scrub oak in your spiritual life. And of course, they said the ponderosa pine. So I said, then we need to trust in the name of the Lord our God. It says, those who collapse and fall, they trust in chariots and horses. We talked about that. What what was that back in the day? That was your primary hope of victory and warfare at that time. right? If you had chariots and horses, you were in good shape. Those people that trusted in that stuff, he says they collapse and fall. So I, I said to the boys, we don't have those today in, in warfare anymore, chariots and horses so much, but what are things that people trust in today that, that people put on the throne where only Jesus should be that, 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 that we trust in above Him that will cause us to collapse and fall? What do people trust in? 
Sometimes people put politics on that throne where, where only, only Jesus should be. Right? Sometimes people put their own wisdom on that throne where only Jesus should be. Uh, sometimes people put the opinions of other people on that throne where only Jesus should be. Let's not do that. Some of those things have places in our lives and should be affected by our faith, but they should never take the throne that only Jesus sits on. Let's trust in Him. That was an object lesson on a tree. Jesus is doing an object lesson with the tree right here. Why do I say that? Because it may not become immediately apparent to the American mind, but to the Jewish mind, to guys who knew their Old Testament, they would realize that the fig tree was often used as a picture of the nation of Israel. In fact, in the book of Jeremiah, you see God speaking to the people about that. He's coming to examine His people for fruit. Okay, Jeremiah 8.13 says, When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and, and what I gave them has passed away from them. This was a time of sinful behavior in the nation of Israel. God came looking for spiritual fruit, and there wasn't any because they were walking away from Him. And it brings to mind the idea that Jesus says in Luke chapter 12 after a parable. Maybe you can finish this line for me. To whom much is given, much is required. God had given the, the nation of Israel much in the way of covenants and, and miracles and, and promises and His work throughout their history. And when He came to them, He expected fruit among His people. But at that time, they were apostate, walking away from Him. That message will be fleshed out more even in our temple passage here. You, you'll see the connection. Verse 15 says, they, they came to Jerusalem. And He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And He was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written... My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now watch the connection between the fig tree and the temple. From a distance, the, the fig tree looked really good, right? Full of leaves. But upon closer inspection, there was no fruit. The temple at this time was like that. It was one of the wonders of the world. If you know your Old Testament history, it wasn't always that way when the when the Jews came back and they rebuilt the temple at first, it was very small. So small that the people who came back, some of them who remembered the original one, wept because it was nothing to look at. But since then, Herod had come along and he had done the ultimate rebuild on the temple. It was majestic and, and a thing people would marvel at. You remember Jesus' own disciples. Look how big the stones are. right? So it, it looked amazing. The, the structure did. It also... This, at this time of year, it was Passover. Thousands upon thousands of people coming in and going, wow, look at all this religious activity. This must be great. This must be amazing. But the Lord, the fruit inspector, comes to take a closer look. In fact, uh, Mark tells us earlier in this chapter, in verse 11, that he first looked the night before. He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. 
Now listen, even if Jesus had gone in there just the day of and done what He did, He would have been right in doing so. He's the Lord. But He looked at it at night, went home, perhaps thought about it more, and then came back and did what He did. That's a good model for us, is it not? As, as people who battle with our flesh. Before we, we go in and try to right some wrong, it would be good to take it home, think on it, and Lord, how would You lead me to work in this situation? Whatever the case... He goes in there as the Lion of Judah. He is flipping tables and chasing people out. Other passages talk about him forming a whip in one of the temple cleansings, which as you know, if you know your Bible, happened twice. Gospel of John shows him doing this once at the beginning of his ministry. And this one is about three years later. What's that a reminder of? Sometimes the cleaning needs to happen again. We saw this even in the Old Testament with Nineveh. Jonah went there, and what did the people do? Repent. You know what the book of Nahum is about years later? Judgment upon Nineveh because they went back to their sinful ways. It's, he came back to clean it up again. You say, what's the problem with what's going on here? Well, let's look. He says, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Okay, a couple things here. What he's overturning here, and this is warning to us, it actually started out as a good thing. It started out as a courtesy to people who traveled a long way for Passover. If you came to Jerusalem from Galilee or even further, it's not real convenient to haul your sheep with you the whole way for your sacrifice. So they started a courtesy service. We'll, we'll sell you an animal here. So you don't have to bring your animal. So you can fulfill the, the obligations. Scholars tell us that at one point, this happened on the Mount of Olives, outside the temple. Okay? Good thing. But in the meantime, what had happened was these folks had moved this into the temple. Scholars tell us it's in the court of the Gentiles. That is the only place in God's temple where non-Jews could come to worship God at the temple. It would have a lot of difficulty doing it in this setting because now there's animals and money being exchanged. And God hints at this when, when Jesus says that this was to be a house of prayer, what? For all nations. He's saying, you're doing this where I set up a place for the Gentiles to pray. You're obstructing their worship by moving it in here. When it started as a good thing, became an obstruction to what God wanted to happen. Prayer. Okay? Now, there's also, he, he says, you've made it a den of robbers. Okay, there was, there was money being made. Many of the early rabbis believed the priestly family was in on it. When they were exchanging money, what was that about? Well, to pay your temple tax as a faithful Jew, it had to be in a certain currency. So folks from other places would bring their currency and exchange it for the currency that worked for the temple tax. But the guys that were doing that exchange took a nice slice off the top for the priestly Families, you have made it a den of robbers. If you want some background on that phrase, read Jeremiah 7, 1 through 14. Jeremiah himself stood in the house of the Lord and proclaimed against God's people and used that same phrase, den of robbers. Okay? So what started as a good thing had become an obstruction and there's some, some greed involved. That explains why Jesus did what He did. But I, I think about what a shock this must have been to the Jews. right? Because what did the common Jew think that Jesus needed to come and take care of and flip? The Romans, right? 
If Jesus would only take care of these Romans, then, then our problems would be solved. What a shock when they, they saw him come into their own temple and start flipping their tables. What a shock that must have been. I think about that. And I want to ask a question. Does Jesus the Lord still reserve the right to flip tables in His house today? He does. He does. And today the the house of the Lord is the church, the, the, the people of the Lord who trust in Jesus. And I want to ask the question, what tables need flipped in the house of the Lord today? I thought about something we experienced in Ohio. One of the cool things in Ohio is some very old church buildings. Uh, We walked into one that was built in 1837, pre-Civil War. Large stone blocks and and beautiful stained glass up at the front of the auditorium. And and it was open for folks to come in and sit down and pray. And We walked in there and sat in the back row and just prayed a short prayer before we walked back to the house where we were staying. Got home and I was telling a family member back there about it. And he told me, sadly, that the the current pastor of that church that had been there since 1837 was gay. That's one table that needs flipped in many churches today. An abomination that goes against God's definition of marriage. That's a table that, that needs flipped in many churches. We could preach on that. We need to preach on that. But I also wanted to make it more personal to ask, are there any tables that need flipped in our church? Because Jesus reserves that right to flip tables in this church just as much as He does in that church. And I think about that, and I think about the importance of the warning that even something that, that, that is good can distract us from, from why we're here. Right? Even a good thing can distract us from why we're here. Why are we here? Well, here's the litmus test. You go to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. That early church was devoted to some things. Devoted to some things. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. God's Word. They were devoted to fellowship with one another. Close relationships. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. Meals together and remembering the Lord's death through communion. And they were devoted to prayer. Later on in that same passage in verse 47, it also says that people being saved were being added to their number daily. That implies that they were also busy doing something else that the Lord had told them in Matthew 28. What's that? Evangelism. Sharing Christ with their lost neighbors, friends, and co-workers. That is is why we were here, are here. Anything that distracts from that or takes away from that Needs to be either reprioritized or flipped and removed all together. I thought about that, that priority of sharing Christ with the lost, and I was convicted on our vacation because one day I was taking a walk downtown Elyria, Ohio, and I saw a lady carrying something large from a distance. At first, I didn't know what it was. She was probably in her 60s or 70s, and she had this large bag. As I got closer, it was a bag of ice. And I was walking the other way, and I'm just on vacation, didn't have any place to be. So I said, hey, where, where are you going with that? Because she was obviously struggling. And then she said, I just taken it up to my house from the gas station. I said, can I help you with that? 
And as we walked, I told her, hey, you know what? i got a Savior who's done a lot for me. <laughs> he died and gave His life for me. And I just want to pay that kind of love and service forward to you today. And it opened up a conversation. It's often not as deep down as we think it is. She said, I hope I'm right before God. I hope I'm right before Him when I meet Him. And I looked at her and I said, you know what? You can know that you're right before God because Jesus gave His life on the cross for your sins and mine. If you would put your faith in Him and repent of your sins, receive Him as your Savior and Lord, you can know. We continued to walk to the house. I dropped the ice off and walked back to dinner praying that the Lord would water that seed. But here's what convicted me. I did that because I was on vacation. I was, I was a little more aware of the opportunity. But I'll confess that sometimes in the day-to-day, I forget that those opportunities are all around me, not just on vacation. And here's the scary thing. Sometimes even work in the church can cause us to forget that part of why we're here. You hear Jesus' heart for the Gentiles here, that it would be a house of prayer for all nations. I hear His heart for the lost. And we as a church are are to reflect His heart in that regard. So it's the church. We need to be asking what tables need flipped. But also, I think about the New Testament idea in 1 Corinthians 6, that as believers, each of us as individuals are temples of the Holy Spirit. So as I'm working through this, I'm also asking God, God, what tables do you want to flip in my heart? What tables do you want to flip? And i got to confess, He showed me a couple on our vacation. He did some table flipping in my heart. I'll share two stories where it came to light. One was at a fast food restaurant. We had spent the day at Cedar Point, one of the coolest roller coaster parks on earth. Sandusky, Ohio. Go. <laughs> if you like high, fast coasters. We put in about six, seven miles of walking that day. It was fun, but by the time we got to this fast food restaurant after we left, it was, it was late. It was late. And uh, we were hungry and tired. They say to watch out when you're hungry and tired. Also, the acronym HALT, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, beware, temptation. I was hungry and tired. We all were. The line was long, about 13 people in this drive through line. And we waited 10 minutes, 20 minutes. We had a little guy who's four who had had enough of the day and was making that known in the back seat. Uh, 40 minutes, 45 minutes. So it's 10.02. We get up to the, the ordering thing. And I start to place my order for the family. And she says, I'm sorry, sir, we're closed. <laughs> Now on Google, it had said 11. In fact, when, when the guy behind me heard me talking to the lady, because and this is where my confession begins, I, I raised my voice to a very high volume, and I said, you will serve me. I waited in line 45 minutes with my family, and the guy behind me in the car behind us is saying, their website says 11. It's only 10.02. He was cheering me on. <laughs> she had waited too she said we're closed sir so we, we proceed to kind of give up and go around the front of the restaurant you couldn't go into this particular restaurant at this time but you could see the workers inside the window and this is where my confession continues I wasn't done I saw the manager in there and I 
And then she opened a window, and I rolled down my window, and she said, I can call the police if you need me to, sir. That's when I pulled out. And on the drive from that restaurant to another one that was open, the Lord started speaking to me like, Scott, did that place deserve some confrontation? Yeah, and there are ways to do that, which I later did properly. You know, you go put the review on and talk to their number about what happened there calmly. Did I handle it in a godly fashion that evening? No. No, and my whole family's watching, exposed to all this. I, I acted in such a way where I wasn't going to harm them, but that lady thought I might to the point where she was going to call the police. And I confessed to the Lord and my whole family, you have a short temper in this moment, Scott. Something's brewing in there, and it's showing that, and that popped out. You need to confess that, that kind of anger over such a small thing. You were wrong. And I apologize to my family. It happened one other time there on the, the discipleship which happens on the road. Any of you in that discipleship group? <laughs> the discipleship that happens on 69 or 17? God works in our hearts in those places, you know that? <laughs> we, it was another late night. <laughs> That's a common thread here. I was tired again. We were driving home from Carolyn's family's house to my parents' house where we were sleeping that night, and there were two lanes going our way, and I'm in the right lane, and this guy like almost hit our bumper as he just changed right into our lane. No, no blinker, no warning, and I just, I laid on the horn, not one of those courtesy beefs. It was like 10 seconds, like, and I'm just following him. And the boys are getting excited, like, I can't wait to do that with the horn someday when I drive. <laughs> but then when we saw up the road the apartment complex that that car pulled into, something hit me. That same apartment complex that that, that car pulled into, earlier in the week we had driven by in broad daylight, and two men were out in the parking lot throwing fists, broad daylight. Kind of a rough neighborhood, evidently. And I got to thinking, what if, just because of my silly anger, I was, I was not warning that car. This was pure vengeance honking, right? Pure anger. What if someone in that car had pulled out a gun and I had my whole family in there? How foolish for my petty little anger just to, to lay on the horn. And I apologize to my family for that. My, my anger in those moments is a table that God is flipping and it became apparent to Jaden. Jaden said, Dad, you're, you're usually pretty laid back. And that was kind of a red flag, like something's going on in here that I need to let Jesus take care of. I need to lay down that unrighteous anger. Because I promise you, this was not the, the righteous anger of Jesus in the temple, standing up for God's will. This was just fleshly anger because I was inconvenienced a couple times. And that was wrong. What tables do you need to flip? Do you need Jesus to flip? In your heart, believer, would you be willing to invite him in? Say, search my heart, O oh God. I am your temple. Flip those tables. Those tables aren't doing you any good. They're not doing the people around you any good. They're not doing your witness any good. Let him go to work. Surrender to what he wishes to do. Verse 18, as the chief priests and the scribes heard it, what Jesus was doing, and were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching 
I'd encourage you to research this. I read one scholar that said this is the first time we read of the chief priest plotting Jesus' death. Before this, you get the scribes and the Pharisees. But he, he indicated that right now, now that their position and their prophets are threatened, they jump in on it. Okay, Kind of like he said when, when Martin Luther first started up with some of his theological debates sharing the truth of God's word. At first, the, the papacy ignored it. But once he started touching indulgences, that money that was going back, then they jumped in. You start messing with people's position and power. And they were coming against Jesus here. They missed that God had visited His temple as Malachi 3, 1-3 predicted He would. They feared Him. They sought to destroy Him. Verse 19 says, When evening came, they went out of the city, Jesus and His guys. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Remember Jesus has said, May you never bear fruit again. When Jesus curses something, the job is done. It withered. And not just a little bit. All the way to the roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has, has withered. He was shocked at the, the, the power of Jesus' word over this, this fig tree. and This is sobering because it reminds us that Jesus is the judge. His resurrection verified it. He is the judge. Read Acts 17. Of all men, He commands everyone to repent. He's the judge not just of trees and temples, but of eternal destinies of individuals. All who refuse to believe are under condemnation. John 5 says He judges. He says, Honor Me as you honor the Father. Whoever does not honor Me does not honor the Father. So where does that sobering reality take us? Well, it takes us to Acts chapter 2. If you know your history, you know that Jesus had warned Israel that judgment was coming because they missed His day of visitation. Before we get to Acts 2, go back to Luke 19. Right around this same passage here, right before He cleansed the temple, Luke 19.41 says, When He drew near and saw the city, He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. He speaks truth, but He weeps as He speaks it because the Lord is willing that none should perish. The temple and the city of Jerusalem were destroyed by Rome in A.D. 70 because as a nation, they rejected their Messiah. However, in Israel, there was a remnant. There's always a remnant. Remember, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, preached the risen Lord and Savior. And the crowd there in Acts 2.37 said, when they heard, it says when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And that's a question we ought to be asking when we realize Jesus is the judge. Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. 
for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. Verse 41 says, Those who received His word were baptized. There were added that day about 3,000 souls. Brothers, what shall we do? Repent and believe because the judge is also the Savior. You see, the same Lion of Judah who, who cleansed the temple that day is also the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now is the day of salvation. Have you turned to Him in faith and repentance? Whether you experience His wrath or His grace comes down to that decision. He goes on to use this withered fig tree and Peter's shock at it as a lesson about prayer. An, an encouragement to believers in their prayer life. The same warning of the curse is an encouragement to those who are believers because the one who cursed that tree, you know what Romans says of believers, God is for, for us, not against us, right? So here's the encouragement in our prayer lives. Jesus answered them. You think that fig tree something, Peter? Have, have faith in God. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass, it'll be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now when he talked about a mountain that needed moved, we all need to realize that that was a common metaphor among the rabbis for an insurmountable difficulty in your life. Okay, they, they knew that's what it stood for. Just like if I tell you it's raining cats and dogs outside, most of you are not going to go grab a leash and a bag of dog food and say, oh, I hope I find a, a pit bull or a Yorkie or a tabby cat. No, you know it's a, a metaphor. Jesus' disciples knew that metaphor. An insurmountable difficulty in your life. Now, Let's balance that. They also knew a God who had worked in their history, who had worked in very physical ways. He had knocked down walls around Jericho. He had stopped rivers and, and, and parted seas, so He can work physically. So what I want to say is it's not smaller than mountains. It, it's bigger than mountains, physical mountains. It's insurmountable difficulties in our lives. What does He say? Whoever says to that mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. He's challenging disciples to pray in faith. I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. When you pray, do you pray in faith in a God who moves mountains? Now, if you know your Bible, you know there's an asterisk here. It must also be His will. Right? We read Scripture all together, okay? Lord's Prayer, Your kingdom come, Your will be done, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You pray in faith and it's in His will or in the name of Christ as Jesus says. Count on this promise. It will be Yours. So let me ask you, what insurmountable difficulty are you facing today? You look at it and you have no idea how you're going to get through. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's financial. Listen, 
we have rightly spoken many times against the abuses of the prosperity gospel that if, if you're a Christian and you have faith, you will automatically be wealthy and healthy. We have spoken against that, but as we do that, we must not ignore the promises of Jesus Christ. He did promise that as we seek first His kingdom, all these things will be added unto you as well. Your food, your shelter, your clothing. Jesus promised that. And even in Mark 10.30, if you remember a couple weeks ago when Peter said, Lord, what will we receive since we left everything and followed you? Read Mark 10.30. You know what's included in there that we don't often talk about? Lands. Lands. He'll take care of your physical needs. If you have a financial mountain, take it to Him. Does that mean we'll never go through hard times financially? No. Take it to Him. Relational. Maybe you've got a relationship in your life that is broken. Or someone you're concerned about and you just don't know the answer. Maybe it's a family member or a friend. And you're, you're at your wit's end. Maybe it's the discouragement that comes in the spiritual battle. How many of you will attest to the fact that we have an enemy who is active and seek, seeks to hit us with darts of discouragement in our lives? I talked to Carolyn about that on our vacation. People ask, how was your vacation? I said, good and interesting. Here's the interesting part. I said, you know, we had a good time and really enjoyed connecting with family and friends back there and, and uh, made some memories together. But I told her, honestly... I've got some discouragement going on in my life. It's almost like I'm trying to rest on this vacation, but I've got arrows sticking in me. That's what it felt like. Like the, the arrows from the spiritual battle. Some of you know that. Some of you know what that's like, the, the discouragement. Maybe that's the mountain you're facing. You're not alone. Who's heard of Charles Spurgeon? One of the, the greatest preachers in London of God's Word ever. He battled depression for, for much of his life. How many of you knew that? He, he said, Knowing by most painful experience what deep depression of spirit means, and then he goes on to say that he wrote about it for others to read, so that younger men might not fancy that some strange thing had happened to them when they became for a season possessed by melancholy. He used his experience to encourage others in the middle of that valley. You're not alone. And he also found great intimacy with Christ in the middle of his discouragement. Listen to what he said. He said, Jesus is touched not with a feeling of your strength, but of your infirmity. Down here, poor, feeble nothings affect the heart of their great high priest on high, who is crowned with glory and honor. As the mother feels with the weakness of her babe, so does Jesus feel with the poorest, saddest, and weakest of His chosen. I'll tell you, when I was walking through that those two weeks, I was feasting on the Psalms, not as some kind of daily required reading, but they were, they were my food. Verses like, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul longs for You, O God. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and, and heard my cry. Or Jeremiah in Lamentations 3, I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for Him. And listen, I tell you what, sometimes 
It feels like the miracle is just His strength giving us the strength to put one foot in front of the other and carry on in His call. I can tell you the only way I'm preaching here this morning is His strength. It's Him. He doesn't always take the mountains away. Sometimes He delivers us through the mountains. You're not alone. And I want to speak especially to the young people in this room. I remember my teenage years. There are a lot of mountains in those years. A lot of decisions, a lot of temptations, a lot of things that weigh on you. I want you to bank on this. Whatever mountain you're facing, Take it to an almighty Savior in faith. He loves you. You are not alone. Jesus pulls one more lesson for His disciples about prayer. As we close, verse 25, He says, Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. As you pray to Him in faith, that's one more table you need to invite Him to explore. Lord, do I have a a hateful grudge against anyone in my life? Let the Lord knock it down. Let Him destroy that table. As we close, I want to lead us into a few moments of reflection on where we've gone. We've covered a lot of ground. Trees and temples and mountains. Biggest question, once for all, have I turned to Him in faith and repentance? Will I experience Jesus as my condemning judge or my Savior? Ultimate freedom is found only in Him. Shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. If you haven't come, come today. None of us has promised another moment. Turn to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All the short tempers, the anger, the the oversight of why we're here, the lies, the lust, you name it. He died for you. Bring it to the cross. I want to talk to the believers for a moment. Invite Him for just a moment. Say, Jesus, what tables do You want to flip in my heart? What sin needs removed? What priorities have distracted me from why I'm here? Even good things that have gotten in the way that need reprioritized. Come in, Savior. Search us and know our hearts. And last but not least, what mountains do you face today? Take them to our God who sits enthroned above the flood and yet enters into it with us in His power. Take it to Him in faith. Submit to His will. Lay it down before Him. Father, thank You for this passage. Not always a a comfortable one, but you're too loving for that. You know that true love involves truth. Is willing to shine a light on what needs to change so that we can live that full life in Jesus. We're called to, and you can use us to bring others along for the ride. Please work in us as individuals, us as a church. Help us to be sensitive. Help us to resharpen our focus 
once again on why we're here. Please lead us. Not only as Savior, but as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Father, I pray even as we take our offering this morning, it will be an act of faith and, and gratitude for the ways you care for us, especially the, the ultimate price you paid on the cross, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.